Good morning, friends. Grateful to be with you this morning and to be able to open the scriptures. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 11. We are making our way through this book little by little and sometimes big chunk by big chunk. When you sing a song like How Great Thou Art and then you open the book of Acts, you can't help but be amazed at how great God is. Numerous times, and we'll see it again in this passage this morning, how God blessed the preaching and the teaching of his word, how God moved in the hearts of this person and that person to come to faith and to follow him with obedience. And, and so we open this morning, and let us never lose the awe and wonder of who God is. All right, would you stand with me for the reading of the scripture? Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter today for our study. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen, they made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, Cypriot and Cyrenian men, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Hellenists, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Then the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of the people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church, and they taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the entire Roman world. This took place during the time of Claudius. So each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who were in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray together again. God, we open your word because we want to know you. We open your word, God, because we believe that in this book contains words of truth and hope and meaning and purpose and direction for our lives today. And God, I ask that your spirit would give us eyes to see and that he would give us ears to hear, that he would give us hearts to set upon the truth you have for us this morning so that we may learn in order to live for your glory. We thank you, God, for the incredible privilege it is to even open up the scriptures today. Help us to not take this for granted, but to invest our lives in what matters most, and that is knowing you, loving you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. We bless you, God, in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Together we say, amen. You may be seated, thank you. So Acts chapter 11, next week we're going to be studying Acts chapter 12, and then we're going to be looking at Peter for Resurrection Sunday, and then we're going to be discussing prayer. But we want to find, uh, find out what Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and following have for us today. So as we have already read, you will notice every, every passage has a context. And part of the context here we find in verse 19, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution 
What persecution? Well, he mentions Stephen that follows that. And so if you remember back a few weeks ago, we were studying Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, there's great persecution that came upon the church. And many of the Hellenistic Jews left that area. And as they went, they went to places like Samaria. And so we visited Samaria and what God did through the preaching of his word in Samaria. Many people came to faith. And then they kept going out different regions. There was the whole Ethiopian eunuch where... um, Philip met him uh, down on the southwestern portion of Israel, and then he took that message, presumably, down to his people down in Africa. We have then these, these disciples who continue to go to other places, and the places that we are in today are places such as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. And so whenever you see places and you see context, you, you, it's a good question to ask, why is that there, and how does that help me understand what God is doing? So um, to, to help us out with that, let's start with the geography, all right? Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Let me show you where those places are. So you'll notice Jerusalem at the bottom center of the map. You'll notice Cyprus is the island that is out in the middle of the ocean, hence, you know, definition of island. And then you'll see Antioch, which is also up kind of on the coastline north of Jerusalem by quite a bit. You could reach that by land or you could reach that by sea. All right, there's two different ways you can, you can go there. Now, if you were to go just a little bit south of Antioch, you would come to Phoenicia, all right? Phoenicia here refers to a region, not to a city. So here are some of the photos of this area, because it's always helpful to have pictures in your mind whenever you come to the biblical text, because these things happen in a real place. So let's, let me show you a couple of pictures here. Here's the city of Tyre. Tyre is a city in Phoenicia, Okay, here's Tyre. Here's another city that might sound familiar, Zarephath. If you go to some of the passages in the Hebrew scripture, you have the widow at Zarephath. She's up in that Phoenicia area in Zarephath, pretty close to the water, as you can see. And then you have Sidon, okay, or Sidon. Um, you, so you have Tyre, Phoenicia, or Tyre, Zarephath, and Sidon. Here's a picture of Cyprus that kind of just orients you to the place. This is, Amethus is a very important city within the port of Cyprus. Paul would have traveled through here, all right? So we have Cyprus, and then we also notice um, that there is mentioned in our text in verse 20, But there were some of them, Cypriot and Cyrenian men, who came to Antioch and began to proclaim the message of the Messiah to the Hellenists. So, where is Cyrene? Let's go ahead and see that one too. All right, so this kind of gives you the big picture. You see Antioch. If you see Antioch and you go straight down, you'll find Jerusalem eventually. All right, you see Cyprus and then you see Cyrene. There's a lot of travel going on here. And one of the amazing things about all this travel is that as people go, they share the gospel. So, you have people from Cyrene coming over to Antioch. You have people from Cyprus coming over to Antioch, all to share the gospel and the good news. Now, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Let me help you understand these cities a little bit. These were cities with a large Gentile population, all right? We've reached kind of a turning point in the book of Acts to some extent where we're out of Judea, we're out of Samaria. Now we're kind of going to the uttermost parts of the world. If you go back to Acts 1.8, Um, you will be my witnesses to all these places. We see the gospel continually expanding. And you notice in verse 19 that uh, there were disciples who spoke the message to no one except Jews. 
by and large, up until this point, the message of the gospel had been proclaimed from one Jewish believer to another Jewish person who had not yet come to faith in Jesus the Messiah. So it had been a largely Jewish message, but now we have this expanding. And I love the passion that these men, you know, it doesn't even list their names, the people who spoke to the Hellenists. It just says, and there were some men who were from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they began speaking and proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. These areas though, they're large Gentile, but they still have Jewish communities. Even if you go up into Antioch, for example, there's large Jewish communities that exist in there. And there are reasons for that, that when we study Antioch in a little more depth, in depth in a few weeks, that we can go into. But so you have the gospel going from a Jewish believer to a Jewish community, and then that gospel finally went out to the Gentile world. And in fact, they would take it to, uh, if you'll notice, they began speaking to the Hellenist. Hellenist here simply means someone who is not a Jew, someone who is from a Greek background. Now, you could, you, know, you could have a Hellenistic Jew, someone who is Jewish by birth, but who was not um, Jewish by where they were born and raised, you know? So you could have a Jew in Cyrene who's a Jew, but he's not, you know, he's not born in the land of Israel. So we come to Antioch, and many people come to faith in the Messiah in Antioch. And the text even tells us this is the first place that people were called Christian. It's interesting, the word Christian only occurs three times in the New Testament. And it means to, to bear the name of Christ. It means that when someone were to see these people, they would say, wow, he looks a lot like what I've heard about Jesus. All right? it, it doesn't mean that they have, um, it doesn't mean that they have maybe, uh, how do I explain it? It means that what they believe has come out in how they live. All right? There's no distinction between what they say they believe and how their belief is lived out. And, and in 1 Peter chapter 4, where one of the places where Christian is mentioned, it actually talks about be proud and glorify God that you bear the name of Christ, even if it means suffering, which will make sense as the church continues to experience suffering. So this uh, experience in Antioch is the first evidence of a distinct outward ministry to Gentiles. So let me help you understand the cultural context of Antioch. And we'll talk about this more, but you need to understand a couple of key things as we start. Um, Antioch was the third greatest city in the world. All right, the third greatest city in the world. Yeah, here are some pictures. There's three of them. This one, go ahead and go to the next one. Just get your sights on it, all right? Big city. The last one was taken around the turn of the century. That would be the, uh, the 1900s. Um, Antioch was the third greatest city in the world after Roman Alexandria by the year 165 AD. All right, so within 100 years of the writing of the book of Acts, this was a significant power player. One of the reasons it's a significant power player is it is in a good trade line. There was something called the Silk Trail that went through here, where goods would be traded from the west to the east, and that goods create money. And so there was a lot of money that came through here. But they were also noted for notorious immorality, all right? Th there was a lot of sin going on in Antioch. Um, Antioch was famous for chariot racing and pursuing pleasure day and night. And there was, a, there was a goddess that they worshiped there whose name was Daphne. And their temple of Daphne stood five miles outside of Antioch. And Antioch provided the, or Daphne and some of the cult uh, 
worship that existed within that, that culture provided the opportunity um, to have very loose, very immoral, very ungodly living. So picture your mind, a significant city within the region and within the whole world, one that is very, 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 very pagan. And yet, this is where the gospel to the Gentiles is really birthed out of in many ways. Um, The large, and it's very appropriate because there was a large Jewish community there and, you know, whether the Jewish community was orthodox or observant, I I don't know. Um, I would imagine that many of these orthodox or many of these Jewish communities still sought to follow the Lord, and so they find themselves being a witness for God in Judaism within the context God has placed them. But as the gospel comes up from the disciples who are leaving Jerusalem, many Jews came to faith in Jesus, and then that message began to be turned out upon the, the unbelieving people around them. The large Jewish community, one scholar says, that existed in Antioch, whose beliefs spread to many Gentiles, made it a favorable place for the first Jewish Gentile Christian church and community. And so we find in our text today That when the Jerusalem church hears about what God is doing by the preaching of the gospel in Antioch, they send someone. They want to hear what is going on. They want to understand what God is doing there. And so they send a man, and his name is Barnabas. Barnabas. Now, it's we're going to spend a little bit of time here and ask the question, why do they send Barnabas? If you could send anyone to a young, fledgling church, who would you send and why would you send them? Well, they sent Barnabas. Barnabas is his nickname, all right? How many of you have nicknames in the room? We have a couple that have nicknames. All right. Uh, I had a nickname growing up, and I, I thought I knew the origin, and then I asked my mom this weekend what the origin was, and I got the origin wrong. But here's the real story. So uh, when I was born, uh, I was born in Africa. My parents were missionaries in Africa for six years doing dental medical missions. And we had some friends over there, and one of them na- nicknamed me. Now, I was one when we left, so that'll give you context of my age. But, but she nicknamed me... Um, Dunker Do, all right? Dunker Do was my nickname, and I don't share that with many people, so there's some, some actual, there was a time in which I, I remember essentially forbidding that anyone share that, that nickname with uh, anyone, really. And nicknames are such that they can come to describe who someone is. One of the things uh, that I love to do is if I go to a restaurant or if we're making food at home, I love to take food and I love to dip it or dunk it in sauce. Um, you know, there's that, there's, that, there's that phrase, I don't remember which brand it is, but it says the sauce is the boss. You know, that, that, I, I resonate with that. There, there's a lot of, uh, the, what's the other phrase I say? I also say, um, it, it, I don't remember the phrase I say, but it's all about the sauce. Yeah, go, go figure, I can't remember my own sayings. Um, nicknames, come to describe who we are, all right? So Barnabas is a nickname. And if we go to Acts chapter four, we find out a little bit about Barnabas. So if you want to, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter four, just a couple pages prior, in verse 36, we have believers sharing all all the things. They have one heart and one mind, and the apostles are teaching, and God is doing mighty things within the church in Jerusalem. And here we find a man, and his name in verse 36 is Joseph. 
Joseph. Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth. In other words, he is from Cyprus, whom the apostles named Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement. So we find out several things about Joseph, a.k.a. Barnabas, in this. He's a Levite, okay? He's from the tribe of Levi, or Levi, and, and he is one who would have an important role in caring for the temple and all the sacrificial practices and all such things. He's also from Cyprus, so he has a non, you know, like Judean background. He probably speaks multiple languages, and he understands a lot of the Greek Hellenistic culture. And then, the, it's interesting, the apostles named him Barnabas. They nicknamed him Barnabas, and it means son of encouragement. We find out something else in the verse following that about Joseph, a.k.a. Barnabas. Um, he sold a field that he owned, he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And so you see in this man, Barnabas, someone who's incredibly generous, someone who is completely all in with what God is doing in that early community to the point where he's willing to take possessions that he has and give them over for the care of other people, all right? This is a good man. This is a really good man. And the fact that they would name him son of encouragement tells us something about how he interacts with other people. So if you would turn with me also to Acts chapter 9 where we experience Barnabas again. We see Barnabas in Acts chapter 9, and if you remember Acts chapter 9, that is where we met Saul. Now, Saul was the quintessential person who came and he ravaged after the church. The word ravage in the text, that's how mine translates it, means to tear apart flesh. He was one who went after believers in the Messiah Jesus at all costs, to the point where he was headed to Damascus, and it's on his way to Damascus where he was going to essentially try and just take out this fledgling community of followers in Jesus. It's on that way that Jesus meets him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because Saul's, Saul's um, anger and Saul's passion and his zeal for the law, all of this was directed. He, he thought he was trying to save God. And Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul, really, in the way Pastor Tom characterized it several weeks ago, was he'd be akin to a known terrorist today coming to faith in the Messiah. That dramatic of a change. You go from one really, really, really guy who is against God's community, the church, to someone who is now a follower of Jesus. And we find Barnabas in verse 26. All right, chapter 9, verse 26. When he arrived in Jerusalem, this is Saul, he tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. <laughs> all right, so Saul comes to faith in Jesus. He wants to go talk to Peter and Andrew and to John and all these disciples, these early church leaders. He wants to go talk to them and they're scared of him. They're, they're absolutely scared of him because they didn't believe that his conversion was, was genuine. But, notice with me verse 27, Barnabas, son of encouragement, all right? You just always put that little tagline in there so that you know what Barnabas means. Barnabas, son of encouragement, however, took him and they brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus, all right? An incredible life transformation has happened. No one believes him and yet, 
we have Barnabas who's willing to stand up and say, wait, this man knows the Lord. And so go with, go with me to the next verse there. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And we see a little bit of Saul here. We'll talk about Saul in coming weeks. He conversed and debated with Hellenistic Jews, but they attempted to kill him. And that's how he ends up in Tarsus. All right, so there's a little bit of Saul. But notice, Barnabas, son of encouragement, is the person who comes along and says, come with me, Saul. I've got some friends that I will vouch for you too, and I will be that person who validates what God has done in your life. All right, we, we get pictures of who this Barnabas guy is. So you can turn with me back to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, we see a couple more details regarding who Barnabas was. And whenever there's these details there, they're there for a reason, all right? They don't have to put all this. Like, they didn't put names of the people who shared the gospel initially in Antioch. They just told where they're from, you know? And, and, but they do take time, the writer takes time to describe Barnabas. Notice with me in verse 23. When he arrived and saw the grace of God... He was glad, and here's what he did. He encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a full resolve of heart, firm resolve of heart. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So we, we find out a lot of things about Barnabas in just these few verses. He saw the grace of God. He was glad and he encouraged, which shouldn't be all that shocking since his nickname means son of encouragement. He encouraged um, these young believers to remain true to the Lord. Sorry, I lost my place. Oh, there it is. Okay, yeah. To, to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. He was a good man, and he's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So why would a young church want to have a Barnabas? Maybe the question really is, why wouldn't a young church want to have a Barnabas? Think about it. Some of the most formative years of your life are those first years after you come to follow Jesus. And a lot of what people say can affect how you relate to God. When the early church wanted to send someone, they sent someone who was an encourager. Now, he didn't shy away from the truth. He spoke to them. He taught them. He instilled Christ into them. And yet, he encouraged them. Because that's the only thing he could do, is a part of how God had made him. And it's what the apostles had seen. Why would you not want a Barnabas? And remember the cultural context. Antioch was a place that was very pagan. They worshipped many gods. There was unbound sexual promiscuity and practices that were condoned, essentially, in the culture. And this was a significant city in the region. Encouragement is a key ingredient to helping people who have come from a past of sin move forward by the grace of God. Now, the word encouragement, here's a Greek word for today, the word encouragement is parakaleo. Can you say that with me? Parakaleo. One more time. Parakaleo. Okay, and it means to urge strongly, to appeal to, to urge exhort or to encourage. It's actually even related to a word that means to comfort. All right, so there's a couple different nuances of this word, but it, but it means, hey, I'm all in. I'm going to urge strongly. I'm going to appeal to. And notice what he appeals to them for. He doesn't just say, hey, good job. Hey, keep going. 
he encourages them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of heart. Now, that's an interesting phrase to me because it's really easy to encourage someone in ways that are less significant. It's easy to say, hey, good job, and, th- and that's good. It's easy to say, hey, I love how you did this. Okay, that's, that's great. But to encourage and to urge someone to follow Christ is even greater. It's, it's to say, and, and you'll notice in your passage, he does this by teaching. There's a lot of teaching going on. He's constantly going back to the scriptures and he's saying, hey, here's what God has called us to. Hey, here's how we honor the name of Christ. And it was apparently very used by God because we find in our text that people were called Christians first in Antioch, all right? As he exhorted them and encouraged them to follow Christ, people began to say, hey, you're a Christian, aren't you? Yeah, hey, you're a Christian, aren't you? There was something noticeable and distinct. But here's the thing. Sometimes we want to control people or we want to shame people or we want to manipulate people into right action. Right? This happens in families, it happens in relationships, it happens within the church body. Sometimes we want to control, shame, or manipulate people into right action. But Barnabas was a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, and he sought not to manipulate, not to control, not to shame, but to encourage. People who are experiencing temptation from sin and who are experiencing persecution, he says, keep on, keep on, keep on following Christ. Whatever you're facing today, keep on following Christ. It's worth it. How do you follow Christ? Let's talk about that. Teach, teach, teach. Opening the word of God, understanding what God has to say. That is what he did. Now, encouragement is an absolutely key ingredient within a local congregation because encouragement done biblically positively leads people to help them follow Christ. As I've said, teaching scripture is a key component of encouraging people in this manner. And teaching can occur in multiple settings. It can occur in something like this. It can occur in your classes that come after this. It can occur in your um, community groups or in people that you meet with. Whenever you gather, um, it's an opportunity to encourage one another, all right? And encourage one another biblically. One of my favorite moments of the week is Thursday morning at 6.30 a.m. Why, you may ask, is because that's when I meet with my co-class leaders for our adult Bible Connections class. And we gather, and it's really early, so we drink a lot of coffee, but we gather and we open the text and we say, what does God want to teach us? And what does God want to teach our community, our class, as we gather around Genesis, whatever chapter we're in, because we've been in Genesis for a long time. But one of the things that's always an encouragement to me is we find out what God has to say and then we encourage one another in that regard. That's the kind of encouragement God calls us toward and invites us into. But encouragement can be really difficult sometimes. It can be difficult to receive and to give encouragement. One of the reasons why it can be difficult is because we have a high degree of self-interest. Sometimes we think of ourselves a lot more highly than we ought to, as the scripture says. Um, We have personal ambition and we have personal preferences that get in the way of us receiving biblical encouragement or us giving biblical encouragement, right? Another reason that encouragement can be difficult is, is because we have a lack of a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus. The more we grow in Christ, the more that propels us to encourage others. And closely tied to that, we can also have a lack 
of biblical content and knowledge in our lives. Biblical encouragement, as I've said, does more than say thank you. It recognizes godliness and ungodliness, and it urges someone to continue pursuing Christ regardless of the circumstance in their life. And one of the ways we do that is through this book. And when we're not in the book, it's a lot more difficult to exhort and to encourage to parakaleo from our own human resources. So let me ask you a question. How do people leave your presence? How do people leave your presence? If, if you have a conversation with someone, does someone leave your presence feeling uplifted? Do they feel cared about and encouraged? Do, do they leave your presence having a bigger picture of how you're seeking to follow Jesus? Not in a selfish way, but in a, hey, here's what the Lord is teaching me. Hey, here's what God is doing in my life. How do people leave your presence? Do they leave encouraged? Do they feel loved? Do they feel empowered to live by the Holy Spirit? Do they feel judged? Do they feel condemned? Do they feel not valued? If it's the latter ones of those, ask God today to work in you to be an encourager to people. Sometimes it's helpful to think about how can we biblically encourage? And I've talked about that a little bit this morning. How do you encourage? Here's a couple of things. This is not um, exhaustive. This isn't exhaustive. But one of the first things you can do is you can listen and you can ask questions. The power of listening is really strong. And the power of listening when you ask questions to find out where someone is and where they're struggling gives you the opportunity to know how to encourage them well. It also gives you the opportunity to know how to pray for them and how to speak the word of God into their life. For example, one of the things I have struggled with in my life is anxiety. You know, I've had panic attacks before and those are just not fun. But when someone comes to me and they say, yeah, I'm struggling with anxiety, one of the things that God began to teach me years ago, and trust me, I have not mastered this. Um, <laughs> anything you struggle with is a constant going back to God. But with anxiety, you know, one of, one of our verses in our home is, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So when someone comes to me with that and we have a conversation or something along those lines, I can encourage them and I can point them to the scripture and I can say, hey, here's what God has taught me about anxiety. It doesn't mean that it'll go away all the time, but it does mean that you in your mind cannot be anxious because God is with you and that you can take your request to God and you can trust that, as Philippians says, that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of God gives us the ability to speak Christ into people's lives and to help them follow him with all their heart, soul, and strength. So listen, you can pray. I love the old hymn, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. One of the things that we can do for one another and that we can do for people outside of the community of faith is we can pray for them. We can pray that God would strengthen them, that God would encourage them, that God, um, God is with them. We can remind them that God is with them. Um, prayer is an incredible way that you and I can encourage. Lastly, again, this isn't exhaustive. You probably have some other great ideas that I'd love to hear. 
we can speak the word of God. The more you know the text, the more you can speak the text into the lives of people. All right? Um, Some of us can think instantaneously of people whom we have been encouraged by throughout our life. Um, earlier this week, as I was, as I was running, a, a name of a person years and years and years ago in my life at my, at my uh, home church growing up, his name popped into my mind. And I shot him a message this week, and I just said, hey, thank you, by the way, for being an encouragement in my life. It was, you know, and, and I talked about a couple of specific things. And he sent me a message back, and he said, you know, some of, some of my fondest memories are being um, someone who served alongside you and watched you grow up and watched you take these steps of faith and watched God continually make you into the person he wants you to be. And he said, he, he turned my encouragement into an encouragement back on me is really what he did. He's like, hey, I'm praying for you. Hey, if there's anything you need, please let me know. And I, was, I, was, I read that, and I was just, I said, thank you, Lord, you know? Thank you, Lord, for giving me an encourager in my life who would be willing, even when I'm trying to encourage him, would be willing to turn it back and say, hey, keep going, keep going, keep going. Scripture calls us to encourage. It does not limit the people whom we encourage. It doesn't say, hey, I want you to encourage these, but don't encourage these. We're all called to encourage one another um, to pursue Christ. So I have just a couple of thoughts as we begin to move towards communion. Um, every follower, regardless of your age, regardless of your experience, regardless of how many years you follow Jesus, each person needs encouragement, all right? Kids, if you're five, six, seven, eight, you need encouragement, but you can also be encouragers. Adults, you may have been following Christ for 40 years or 50 years or 60 years. Receive encouragement and also seek to be an encouragement. I, I wrote this down. Graciously receive encouragement from others in following Christ passionately and generously give encouragement to one another. Even when we don't feel like it, let us speak the word of God to one another. Let's listen. Let's pray for each other as we seek to follow Christ. I love what Colossians says. It says, um, uh, I got to get into it. It talks about Colossians 3. We were just there last week. Go to it. I don't want to mess it up. Colossians 3. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forget, forgive one another. Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of the Messiah to which you were called in one body control your hearts. Be thankful. And then he says this. This is where I was going. Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you. And the you there is the plural you. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. All right? Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him great exhortation for us to be encouragers of one another as we pursue Christ, as we encourage one another to keep on seeking how Christ would have us live. Last week, I shared with you uh, 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 an email address, prayer at fbczealand.org, and I want to just ask you this question. Can we pray for you? Can we encourage you? 
We want to be able to do that. We want to help point you again and again to the Messiah and the perfect sacrifice of his sin and his death upon the cross. And we also want to pray with you for people who are far from God and for whatever you are struggling with in your life. Prayer at fbczealand.org or you can call the church office. We would love and cherish that opportunity to encourage you in your faith. Please share those with us. We're gonna move to communion in, in a moment, and I want to read you this passage from Philippians chapter two. In Philippians chapter two, it's a very famous passion that says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any affection or mercy, Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of ambition or uh, self-conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Each of you should should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And there's this great early hymn, Make Your Attitude That of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. When he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him, and he gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in the heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We come to the table this morning, we come remembering what Christ has done. We come reminding ourselves, being reminded, that we were once far from Christ and yet Christ has brought us near. And it's appropriate and it's fitting whenever we come to celebrate communion, to take a moment of self-reflection, to ask God to show us sin in our life, to ask God to show us how to walk in a manner that is worthy of his name. This morning, it, it, it might be God, Help me to be an encourager. God, I know maybe I have been a discouragement to some people, but God, help me to learn how to speak Christ into them. Maybe for you, it's, there's, there's sin in your life that you need to confess to God. Confess that to God. Renew that relationship with Christ this morning. I want to give you 30 seconds, a minute here right now to do that. I also want to invite our, our worship team and our, our servants to come forward this morning. I invite you to take moments right now to ask God to show you where you are far from him. Confess that, and then let's be reminded to walk in the newness of life.